everybody. Welcome to another episode of the How to Save the World podcast, where we take a deep intellectual dive into the academic research and behavioral science of what really gets people to take pro-environmental action and behavior. I'm your host, Katie Patrick. I'm an environmental engineer and designer based in Silicon Valley, California. And I'm the author of the book, How to Save the World, How to Make Changing the World the Greatest Game We've Ever Played. If you haven't already, sign up to my website at katiepatrick.com to get more free resources about how you can use gamification and behavior design to get your community to zero emissions and make it fun like a game. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Tease Bowman. He is an assistant professor and researcher at the Environmental Psychology Group at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. He's done some fascinating research into the relationship between group and individual value systems. We often think of our value systems and beliefs as our own, but we as humans are highly driven by the groups we form and seeing environmental change through the lens of a group behavior could be a very different way of designing environmental campaigns and programs. And before we jump into the episode, I just wanted to say a huge, massive, awesomely big thank you to everybody who signed up to the Gamify the Planet program on Patreon in the last month. We've had over 50 wonderful, intelligent, warm sustainability professionals and future thinking, creative climate action designers sign up for this program and join me for my first ever climate action design masterclass in my behavior mapping process. I put together every single example that I know of and and every single concept design and all the work I've done into this one big process that goes through these 96 different techniques for how to design for climate action. And part of signing up for Patreon is that you get a shout out on the podcast. So let me say a big thank you to all the new members. So thank you, Alicia Lay, Yasha Og, Tamara Dimatinga, Gregor Martinus, Bantha, Steve Dahlberg, Anita McCowan, James Moll McCohen, Dara Chilton, Alex Glow, Hilary Glenn, Susan Gladwin, Paul Ramsey, Sarah Strickler, Darren Lehman, Christian Omlin, Leslie Lawton, Samuel Salza. He actually runs a behavior content program as well. Uh, Livy Drake, also an environmental psychologist, Arelli, Lorraine Jones, Sarah Amon, very intelligent and insightful museum designer. Kelsey Seeler, Gamar Makarian, Charlotte Haller, Alex Duwati, another gamification designer, Jane Thorpe, SQ, Lindsay Nankaro, Clace London, Wendy Pring, Tim Lip, Gemma Toten, Kate McQuillan, Justine McClement, Trinity Ian Cleland, Laura Taylor, Yaled and Sarah, Brad Pierce, Stephen Schramm, Michael Lehen Boer, James Atkins, Gregoire Lemonnier, sorry if I didn't say it right, Greg, Asha Christophens, Benjamin DePore, Mary Conlon Everett from Global Waterworks. Nick Helwig Larson, James Marita, and Michelle Fox. Thanks so much for signing on. It's amazing to have this group. And next month, I am launching the Living Lab on how to gamify sustainability street. It's going to be really exciting. I've got so much planned. I can't wait to start sharing it with you. But for now, let's get started and jump into the episode with assistant professor and environmental psychology expert, Tease Bowman. Good morning, Thais Bauman. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So good morning and uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, it'll be exciting to dive into this interesting research that you do. And the first question that I always ask everybody on the show is what is the problem in our industry and movement? We've got all these sustainability managers, people who work in environmental NGOs, impact startups at the EPA, And they usually know very little, if anything, about environmental psychology. What's the problem with our whole movement when we are not implementing or knowing about this interesting field? I think where my research mostly focuses on is people, their motivations behind pro-environmental actions. And I think if you want to talk about a problem or something that might be going on, which might need to be corrected or might need to be changed, I think one big thing is how we think about each other and how motivated each of us is to engage in pro-environmental actions. And often it seems in public discourse, but also how things are discussed within politics, within organizations, as if many people are completely not motivated to do so, are relatively egoistic, prefer things that benefit themselves over doing things for the environment. And actually what a lot of my research, but also other research shows is that people tend to care about these kinds of topics quite a lot, also prioritize them over other topics. So there seems to be a motivation. I think the big thing 
we need to do is to make sure that people also act on this motivation. So people seem to be motivated to act for, seem to be motivated and seem to be interested in topics related to the environment, protecting nature, etc. are worried often about climate change. So there are big polls the last years, which show that majorities of the population really care about these topics. It, of course, varies a little bit between countries. I think you're from Australia, right? So it might be slightly different there than it is in the Netherlands. But often you hear a lot of stories about big opposition, people being unmotivated, unwilling to do so. Whereas the data actually often shows the opposite, that quite a lot of people are quite motivated, are interested in these kind of things. However, there are, of course, many barriers for them to act on these, what we call values or motives. And I think that's the important thing we should target in many of the things we do. Right. So what you're saying is that we can tend to think that you got people saying the world is a terrible place because people are just greedy and they're selfish and they don't care. And this is often a bit of a trope that people talk about who really seem to care about the environment a lot. But what you're saying is that people really do care, but what we have is almost behavioral and social barriers. Some of these barriers are really physical things, like you may not actually be able to buy food without Mm -hmm. plastic around it. Or maybe if your kids at school, the catering is got meat in it and you really have no choice over that. But some of these barriers are also almost social and psychological that it might be uncomfortable to be doing something different. Yeah, true. And that's quite a different lens to see things through that it's not just some human moral failing. It's really more like in the value system, but also in the actual like structural behaviors that we need to break down for people and that people will do the right thing if we give them an easier path to do that. Yes, indeed. Of course, part of it is also in the motivation. And you could, of course, boost these kind of things. But I think many people are already motivated. Indeed, you should enable people, help people to act on these values and act consistently on these kind of values, which support environmental actions. And indeed, many of the things you just mentioned, like people may be obstructed in doing so. It may be impossible for them because they don't have enough money to perform the behaviors or something else. It might be contextual factors, social factors, but also many psychological factors. Some behaviors are habits, routines, and those are relatively difficult to change. And it doesn't mean that if people do not act consistently in an environmental way that they don't care about the topic, it often means that they have issues realizing these kind of values. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because one thing that's happened through my whole career, like I've been doing environmental work now for 20 years, been an enthusiast of it ever since I was maybe eight or 10 years old, you know, that's like 30 years now. And the one thing that people say, well, people that are not really environmental, more like normal people would say is that they're like, Katie, nobody cares. You've got to make it about money. You've got to make it like really sexy and appealing or people are just really selfish. Like they always reduce it down to reminding me like nobody's going to be interested in the stuff you do. And I just don't buy it, partly because I'm in a community of people that really mm-hmm. do care. But I think it's really interesting for your research to really unveil that, that I think that objection is just wrong. And I've never really bought that objection when people bring it up, that it's that people just fundamentally don't care. No, indeed, it seems like many people do fundamentally care about these kind of topics, of course, to different extents. But you see in many questionnaires, so for instance, in Europe, you have a big questionnaire. They send out, I think, every two, three years to many different people in different countries within Europe in which they also ask about what we call values. And there you see that what we call biospheric values, which is caring about the environment, caring about nature, feeling a certain connection with nature that people endorse or indicate, or at least that may be an important note to make how people self-report about these things, what they say they find important. So it can be biased, of course, but that many people tend to indicate to really strongly care about these kinds of things, as well as more pro-social topics, and much more about these topics than, for instance, what we call egoistic values, which is more about gaining possession, status, power over others, etc., which typically obstructs pro-environmental behavior. So there seems to be, or at least many people seem to indicate themselves that these topics are relatively important to themselves. And what was the one big lesson that you got out of your research or the research paper we're going in today about group biospheric values? Yeah, I think there the big lesson is that It seems like many people have misperceptions, basically what you just said, that many people think that, well, maybe they themselves care about this topic, but others don't or care less about this topic or less than they themselves do. And I think the second big lesson, and that's where this paper specifically focuses on, is that how you think about others and how much they care about these kind of topics or environmental topics, biospheric values, et cetera, that that also influences whether you engage in these kind of actions. So even if you care about it yourself, If you think that others don't care about it, this can demotivate you to engage in these kind of actions. 
because your social environment seems unsupportive for these kind of things or other reasons. But the less you think others care about this topic, the less you are likely to engage in these kind of behaviors. I think that's sort of the main message that comes out of this paper. And I think what I found interesting when looking at the data that we observed that in general, people tend to think that others care less about the topic than they themselves do. So are seem to be relatively pessimistic about others or optimistic about themselves with regard to this topic. So basically we have this bias of thinking that when we look at, say, a freeway, so I live in the Bay Area and there's this huge freeway called the 101. I think it's got like five or six lanes on either side, full of traffic. You look at all those cars and you just think nobody cares, but look at the, all these people in these cars. And so then when we have this bias, we just assume that society as a whole or various different groups that are different to us don't care, then it gives us a demotivating effect. And we're not even really getting to the causal mechanism of what's going on. So if we just check our own bias, this bias that we are assuming that the group does not care as much as they actually do, and we shift our bias or what it would be if we were accurate, realizing that people actually do care, they're just kind of like trapped in these systemic problems and the way it's designed, then we can be more motivated. So it's actually a far better headspace, a far better worldview and more accurate worldview to take on to just not let those thoughts come in, not let those really pessimistic thoughts come in about people and the world and their apparent selfishness, because they're not helpful. They're going to demotivate you. And if you actually see that people are good, then you'll yourself be more motivated and you'll also be imitating these perceived value systems as well because humans copy each other. So if you think that the group is really into green stuff, then you'll be more into it. So we need to check our own bias, I think, in the way that we're perceiving the group around us. Agree. I find it a bit difficult to talk about bias because it's, of course, a large part of it is based on what people themselves say is important to themselves. And you have things like social desirability. People want to present themselves in certain ways. So we still need to focus or research better how accurate all these reports are. But it seems indeed, well, the consistent finding seems to be that people think that they care more about this topic than others. And they think that they indicate that this is an important topic already means that it's something at least they think is worth caring about and is important to say that you care about, which I think is also quite a positive message. And I think it is really important to make people aware about that others care about this topic and maybe sometimes also that people themselves care about these topics as well. Because I think for many people, there's also, for instance, research on what we call an environmental self-identity. That's how environmental people perceive themselves. And also by reminding people about past actions, pro-environmental actions they performed, you can sort of boost this identity, which then in turn can also motivate these kind of behaviors. So I think it's also that you make people aware about other environmental actions, your own environmental actions, and this might indeed create some kind of atmosphere or whatever that may stimulate people to engage in more pro-environmental actions. And I think it relates a lot to what you just said about the traffic, for instance. Many people focus on the things that are going wrong, and sometimes it might also be good to focus on the things that are going in a good way or the polls that indicate that many people care about a certain topic also to motivate yourself, motivate others to take these kind of actions. Yeah. And so I think it's interesting what you mentioned before, it's come up sometimes with other guests that reminding people of other environmental things that they've done in the past actually helps strengthen that environmental identity and helps encourage more pro-environmental behaviors. And it's also part of a social norms thing. I mean, if someone says that, do you know, like 32% of people believe that we should eat less meat or we should bring in better carbon policies. And you read that, you're like, oh yeah, the group does. You know, it's like a standard social norms message. But it's also reflecting that the group does have this value and everybody's not just selfish and evil. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about an objection that I keep getting. It comes up almost every day or every time I do a guest lecture now, which is people say, why do you focus? Why do you care about individual behavior or individual action when individual action doesn't matter? And what we need is government and systems level change. So isn't it just kind of irrelevant to consider this stuff? So even with governmental change, you aim to also change behaviors of people. So basically we collectively do things together which have an impact on the environment. And so the, the behaviors of each individual contribute to this problem. So you also should target them or think about these kind of things when you want to mitigate or change the current situation. And I fully agree that focusing on policy, more structural changes, et cetera, that's super relevant and important too. And I think in fact, for this, it's also in order to make that happen, they should also believe that these things are important to the people because politicians will only take the actions that they think are supported by their voters because otherwise, well, no politician is willing to take a certain action if they think that afterwards nobody will vote for them again. So I think creating this message and also showing that you care about these things also 
gives a message to those people so that the people who make the decisions to take these actions to, for instance, support you and enable you to act on your values, your environmental values. It's, of course, a difficult problem because it's such a huge problem. But if nobody acts, nothing will happen. So you need the actions of all the individuals in order to achieve something and to change something. And that also includes both just individual citizens. Yeah, it's a big, complex topic, and I've been writing down notes from multiple sources. I think I'm going to put together like a huge essay of all of the different, carving up these different relationships between individual and collective action and government action. But one thing I see happening in that, in how to answer that question is, well, for a start, that the government can't do everything for us. There are a lot of things like, say, like eating less meat, like the government's not going to suddenly make all meat all over the world in every country illegal. That's something that we really only can probably mostly have in our own power. And there are many examples like that. But when we're talking about individual behaviors so they're like the little behaviors like eat less meat switch over to an electric vehicle you buy less stuff there are these kind of individual behaviors and those kind of things have sort of a net environmental footprint effect but then you've also got the environmental attitude and those things are highly related if you have a high environmental attitude you will be more likely to do environmental behaviors and this is where it intersects with government policy if the government's trying to get quite a strong policy through like say in 10 years making sure that you can only buy electric cars. So it'll just be completely illegal to buy regular gasoline cars. You just won't be able to buy them anymore. That's a really strong and bold policy. An aggressive carbon tax is a very strong and bold policy. Peak pricing of electricity. So we're really paying for the carbon in the peak times. Bold, really difficult policy to get through. Unless you've got a population of people that have a high environmental attitude, which is very related to these small individual actions that people are doing in their behavior, but also their mind space. People are going to fight the policy. They're not going to let it through. So in that way, all these little tiny actions, like just that you recycle your headspace, which is connected to your political outlook, you're not going to have the government changes unless you've got people ideologically primed. And you're not going to have people totally ideologically primed and then be like, yeah, I'm really into government policy, but I'm going to use as much electricity as possible. I'm just going to like eat loads of beef. You know, I'm going to like litter everywhere I go. Like these two things come together in the one personality. You you can't separate them. So that's what I kind of understood from your answer and just another dimension of this complex issue. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So in order to get certain policies true, you need the support of the people. And I think also for policymakers to develop certain policies or to support certain decisions, they also need to have the feeling that people support these kinds of things because otherwise they won't propose these things. So in that case, it's also really important that as an individual, you're really clear about your motivations and where you care about. And I think another important thing to note here is that opposition to policies is not necessary. So what you often hear is also that something like carbon tax is then introduced or discussed and that there's a lot of opposition. And that opposition not necessarily means that people are against the environment, think it's not an important problem, don't want to invest in it. It can also be caused by many different things so that they might not trust the politicians who made the policy or that there are other factors driving their opposition. So I think what often happens here is that this is attributed to a lack of motivation to do something environmental. But often many of the opposition is caused by other factors that they don't want to be someone with strong power, that they want to decide on these things themselves. So these kind of motives might also play a role here. So it's not necessarily that they oppose to the environment or think it's not important, but they might oppose to this policy for other reasons as well. And I think that's also important when you think about what we just said, so that people might be demotivated when they have the idea that others don't care about this topic. It's also very important to be realistic on what might drive this opposition. Is it really that people don't care about the environment or might it also be other reasons which sort of make them opposed to these kind of policies? Yeah, and that's one thing that this social science does that no other branch of environmental studies does, which is deeply trying to understand the causality of why things are the way they are. You know, I come from an engineering background. Most people in sustainability are engineers and scientists. And we just see the world in terms of just data and the numbers. And if people aren't doing the right thing, it's like, oh, well, it's obviously because of some big corporation or because people don't care. Like, I think we're really bad at understanding the causality of why things are the way they are and really trying to get to the heart of the nuance of why things get the way they are. It's not just that people like hate climate change or they don't care. It could be something else. It could be something unconscious or some kind of like social bias or some sort of group thing that's going on. But my other objection that comes up that I wanted to ask you about was the value action gap. So this research paper really relies on this concept that having high biospheric values, which you mentioned are 
earth values, we care about the planet, predicts environmental behavior. But then there's this thing called the value action gap that says, you know, if we really educate people about sustainability and we really get them to care, it doesn't always lead to action because it's not designed for action. It's designed for education and concern. So people watch all these documentaries about climate change and then they never, ever get around to putting solar on their house. So the way I'm trying to sort of carve up this question is with the value action gap, you've got these things called education and environmental concern. Are values like something quite different to education and concern, or are they all kind of like mixed up in the one thing? Is it really true that biospheric values predicts environmental behavior? I think the finding that biospheric values or these values relate or underlie environmental actions that's supported widely by many different studies indeed show that the more people care or endorse these biospheric values as well as altruistic values, the more likely they are to engage or have an intention to engage in pro-environmental behavior and also to engage in pro-environmental behavior. So there are many studies focusing on this. And this relationship is quite strong. Indeed, there is a gap between the values and the actions people take. And I think that relates a lot to what we just discussed. I think you have values on the one hand, the core motivation, the really the underlying factor that drives many things. So what you find important, what goals you want to achieve. So how we define a value is sort of a desirable goal. So something you want to strive for in your life. And there are many different values and people endorse many different values. And all those values are sort of the foundation or the basis of many of people, their actions. And on the other hand, you have, or on the other side of the process, you have the actual actions. But there are many steps in between. So it's not that those values, if you have a certain value, that you always will take these actions. Often these actions have consequences for other values you find important as well. So I think what's also the wrong idea is that you have either environmental people or egoistic people. Typically, people care about both. So they might care about the environment, but of course, to many people, possessions are also really important. So they also want to have, I don't know, nice products or whatever. So basically for all those values, it's something many people care about and the prioritization is different. So you might find some values more important than others, but still, if you have a certain action, which is clearly environmental beneficial, so it would be an action that supports your biospheric values. And it seems like that if you have those strong biospheric values, that you will definitely take that action. If that action is super costly, so for instance, costs a lot of money or super inconvenient, it also opposes to other values you may find important as well. So for instance, these egoistic values or what we call hedonic values, which is more about convenience, pleasure. And in those situations, there's what we call a value conflict. If the cost of that behavior are simply perceived as being higher than the benefits it has. So for instance, the cost for egoistic and hedonic values are bigger than the environmental benefits or the perceived environmental benefits of that behavior. Then simply people don't engage in these behaviors. And I think another thing is, so this is mostly about this sort of basis. People have those core motivation, the foundation for many actions, but values are relatively abstract. So it's our very general goals people have. And in order to translate those to those concrete behaviors, there are many different steps in between. So you need to be aware of certain consequences. So you need to be aware that there is an environmental problem, for instance. If you are aware of that, you need to be aware how to deal with it. So what to do, how to do it, what kind of options are available you need to feel a certain feeling of responsibility to take those actions. So there are many different steps through which those values relate to those actions. And I think at all of these steps, certain factors may cause people to not act in line with their values because they might not know how to do it, or they might not see the problem, a specific problem or something like that. And those are all things you could also address in, for instance, interventions as well as in policies. So enable people. So make sure that all those small barriers in those steps are taken away. Yeah, the way I see it now is a little bit like Russian dolls or more like a fruit with a seed in the middle that the values and the attitude is kind of like the core. Maybe it's like an avocado with the seed in the middle. And a lot of environmental people will just assume the values and the attitude will do everything for you. If you care about nature, if you have a pro-environmental attitude, then every single behavior will just like sort of roll out and then it'll all just kind of happen perfectly. But that's where we do still need to focus on having environmental values and behavior, but it needs to be approached like an action designer. Are there stuff in the way stopping people? And there are so many different parts of the psychology that get people to actually take action. So if you were putting a whole bunch of people through an action design process, we want to get people to sign up for getting solar panels, EVs, maybe writing a letter to a politician, turning up to a city council meeting. The people with the high environmental values are going to be much more likely to make it through those steps. The people with the low environmental values aren't going to make it through. But that doesn't mean that we don't need to be behavior designers. We still really need to focus on the action and the behavior. 
And you've just got a lot more fuel in the tank, like psychological fuel in the tank to work with somebody who really cares about the environment and someone who doesn't care that much. I mean, when I first started approaching environmental psychology, I kind of thought that, oh, like and caring about the environment just doesn't matter at all. I was like, oh my God, there's all this stuff that says that it doesn't matter at all. Like as long as you just compare people and kind of gamify it, you can get people to do anything, which is a kind of a lens that I think is true in a certain capacity, but there is a lot more nuance in it when you bring this through and you actually see the kind of interplay between these two things. What I thought was really interesting in your paper also, that's something I have not seen before, which is the distinction between values and social norms. And when I was first reading it, I'm just like, aren't you just talking about social norms? And then I read a bit further and it says, this is why values and social norms are so different. And then that opened up this whole really interesting space of deeply understanding the why. Can you talk about that a bit? What's the difference between values and social norms and maybe what social norms are, because not everybody knows what they are. And what is this big question of understanding the big why behind everything? Yeah, I think so. You're mostly talking, I think, about descriptive norms. So what you think other people's, what kind of actions they do. Those are descriptive norms. You also have injunctive norms, which are about what you think people approve. I think the big difference between these kind of norms and values is values is really the core motivation behind them, whereas the norms are more focusing on the actions. So the norms are more focusing on this is what you should do. This is what other people do. And that are maybe very specific actions may also be general actions. And the values are actually sort of the reasons why people either do it or think these things should be done. It's sort of the underlying goal behind the norms. And typically those values are much more abstract, much more general. And I think an advantage of that is they influence many different behaviors because it's sort of a very general motive that relates to many different things. So if those values are strong, people are motivated to engage in many different behaviors which are in line with those values. Whereas a norm is often much more specific. So also relatively strongly predicts a certain behavior, specific behavior, but only that behavior, unless that underlying goal is there, this value, and then it might also relate to other behaviors. So I think how you could sort of distinguish between them is the values are very abstract, relate to many different things. There's sort of an underlying goal or a purpose where people do things for, and norms are sort of a slightly more concrete translation of those values to specific actions. How would you describe it, say, for something like plastic in the ocean? What would be a norm versus a value? So the value is simply that you care about the environment, nature, environment. So that could be a value. So biospheric value, simply caring about nature, the environment, feeling connected with nature, these kind of things. A norm in this case would be you should not throw your trash on the ground or plastic trash, or you should not take a plastic bag when shopping or seeing others not doing these kind of things. So there it's much more concrete than this much more abstract underlying goal, why you should not take a plastic bag or accept a plastic bag in a shop or something like that. Yeah, I thought that was super interesting because I was just thinking a lot about this concept of environmental leadership recently. And I'd never thought about leadership before. I kind of thought that was something that you would do if you were a politician or you manage a sports team and I never identified with it. And then I realized that this power of the group, the group is so powerful and that we all need to see ourselves as leaders of groups, even if it's just five people we're trying to influence. If we've got a little club and a big corporation, you know, you get these little in-group clubs and corporations who will get together as a little climate activist group, not their bosses telling them to do it. They'll just naturally emerge. And so we're all kind of doing environmental leadership in this way. And I was thinking about all the things you needed to do to help lead a group. And I just wrote down the idea of defining the group's values, which is something that I borrowed from dating. Like when you're looking for a partner or dating, they say you don't go for maybe the egoistic values of someone, connect on values. It really struck me. I thought, you know, we really do deeply connect on shared values. It's how we create friendships. It's how we create really good romantic relationships, how we choose companies that we want to work with. It's really, really important. And so I thought in terms of if people have a group, that doing a sort of this phrase, you know, values design, should we be having values design workshops or really explicitly talking about this, getting a little bit more out there and getting a bit more nuanced about not just an earth biospheric values, but a bit more specific, you know, like dolphins, ocean, marine mammals, these species particularly matter or something to do with trees or more with children. Like we really have a value that children have a right and a necessity to green space and gardening activities for their mental health, you know, really getting nuanced with what the environmental value is. So anyway, long, long question, long way of describing the question. The question I'm trying to say, why do groups matter so much for us to see environmental change through the lens of a group? And if you have a group, what would your advice be to them about this idea of designing and actively really working on explicitly communicating your values in that group? 
so why groups matter? So there's a lot of research focusing on groups and the importance of group. I think in this case, groups matter for many different reasons. I think one core reason is that groups are, of course, important to us. So we, we function in society. We are part of many different groups, can be colleagues, can be sport clubs, can be friends, can be family, et cetera, et cetera. And all of those people are important to you, also to how you see yourself and also the things you find important. So therefore, also many of the things what you think they care about have an influence on what you will do because those people are simply important to you. There's also research showing that how you see yourself, your identity is also based on the groups you are part of. So when you have certain ideas about groups, you're really likely to act in line with these ideas or with what you think is important within that group. So that's an important reason. Of course, evolutionary, there's also many reasons why groups are important to us. It's, it's quite difficult to survive on your own. So you're basically in your life dependent on many different people. And also within this specific problem, I think it's also quite important to stress that you need the actions of many different people. So it might also be either motivation or demotivation if you think either good or bad about how environmental other people are. Because maybe also what you discussed earlier, so how much do individual actions matter? If you as an individual have the feeling nobody else takes action, then you might think, well, my actions are quite useless. Nobody else is doing. Why should I sacrifice things, me alone, when nobody else is doing something? So I think in that sense, it's also how impactful do certain behaviors are. I think it's also really dependent on how your perceptions of others and your perceptions of groups. You need to feel supported, supported by people you care about. And I think also to have some kind of feeling of efficacy, it's important to have the idea that you're not on your own, that many other people are also taking these kind of actions. Yeah. And do you think that really getting clear on the values of a group, and I know your study looked at very, very large groups, which was people's political identity, but I'm thinking like small groups, like the students in a class or employees in an office, or maybe parents at my daughter's school or the school teachers, like a much more intimate type of group like that. Do you think if rather than just assuming, oh, we're all here because climate change matters, like very, very broad level value, but in really taking some time to consider the values and to really use that as the emotional bond that we could create much greater group cohesion. Do you think just taking some time to really focus and flesh out values could create a more emotionally cohesive group than if we were just, just kilowatts and carbon, you know, just looking at the numbers? Definitely. I think these underlying reasons are really important also to bond with people. We also are working on different of these kind of interventions, also how to make people discuss environmental problems or certain interventions for technological solutions, for instance, within neighborhoods or different parties involved in that, and how to make sure that you are aware of each other's values, how those relate to those different actions, or how people perceive those values to relate to different actions, because there are also individual differences in that. So for instance, for a wind park, some people might support it because of environmental values, because it's a more sustainable way of producing energy, but others with very strong environmental values or biospheric values might oppose it because it might, for instance, kill birds. So then basically the same value might underlie two different responses to the same action. And I think talking about these kind of things, understanding each other might also sort of make people better cooperate on these kind of things. So learn from each other how they think about it. And it's not necessarily a value problem so that you're fundamentally caring about different things, but it's more how you translate these kind of things to action and also make more realistic decisions on these topics. Right. That's a really interesting lens in which to view it because environmental issues can be very polarizing. I was recently chatting to a group that's trying to get a bill through for green roofs. I think they're trying to get $500 million through for the federal government to fund green roofs on schools. Like who wouldn't want a green roof on a school? Super friendly, non-controversial. And I said, what's the biggest risk of this bill not getting through? Like what would make it fail? And she said the biggest risk is that it gets politically polarized as a climate change bill. We are going completely on jobs and children's health. And we are staying completely away from climate change, even though the green roofs really help with the energy. It's totally supportive of climate change. But if they run the risk of polarizing it, then all the people who approve it in Congress will say no to it. So it's all like jobs, 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 kids, kids, kids. That's sort of a big federal example, but in terms of smaller examples, we might be trying to get through with our community. If you take a politically polarizing stance on something, maybe like everybody should give up meat and dairy altogether. For a lot of people, that's quite unfriendly for them. And then if you were to connect on more of a deeper, like shared value, which is we believe being healthy is important and we want to decrease animal suffering. 
and nice healthy food matters and healthy children matter. Identifying that value system, really crystallizing it in a way that we're all going to connect on that could really dissolve those kind of natural barriers that come up. And there are a lot of big barriers that come up with sustainability that people don't like. A lot of people think things are disgusting as well. You know, like they think composting toilets are disgusting, reusable packaging, reusable women's menstruation products. They're like, some people even think the idea of growing their own food is filthy. There are these huge barriers that maybe we can come to see the same light on if we get a bit more meta about the value system. Yeah. That's what I do. I just repeat back to you what you said yes. in my words without asking a question. <laughs> it helps me crystallize well, what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I think it definitely makes sense indeed to look at it in that way. I never really thought about it like that before. I have this other question of just this thing I've been starting to notice in our movement, which is it feels like all the government programs and the big not-for-profit programs tend to see people like their islands. I don't get a lot of a sense that there are these kind of like messages asking people to act or to do stuff that we're seeing people as these groups and these interconnected webs of humans, like this kind of capillary system. I'm not an island. I'm a network and mm -hmm. we're all networks and this social network effect completely missing the concept missing the network effect, missing the whole group dynamic and just being a major organization like the EPA or Greenpeace, or whatever, going straight to you as an individual or a corporation being like this, do this, do this, do this behavior. Do you also see this kind of failing as seeing everybody as islands and not coming at it from a social network or a group perspective? Yes and no. I'm not entirely sure whether all, but it might also be a difference between how it's approached here and how it's approached there in Australia. But I have the feeling that now many of these organizations are also focusing on groups. So for instance, when the organizations target, for instance, sport clubs or these kind of things to start talking about these topics and really use these kind of identities in order to promote those actions. So also that groups which are relatively close to people, if they are supporting some things, it might for those people also be easier to engage in these kind of actions or show that they also care about these kind of topics. And I have the feeling personally that these things are done much more frequently and are getting quite common now. So yes, I fully agree with what you say. I'm not entirely sure whether many companies do that, but it might also be a difference between maybe the Netherlands and Australia. And I think there are many differences because also what you just discussed about the topics being very polarized, politicized. I think, for instance, particularly with climate change, that I believe that in Australia is quite a politicized topic. So I think there are some studies on this also from, for instance, Matthew Hornsey showing that for instance, US and Australia are quite strong on this polarization so that you have really two different political camps, either having one or the other opinion. I think in many other countries, it's not that strong. So the politicization of these kind of topics is much less. And indeed, I think it also relates a bit to what you said, is that there the topic might be more about seeing it as an environmental problem and that caring about the environment might be in different ways, but many of the political parties do in some way care about the environment more generally, so at the value level. Mm. I mean, I find in general, in the split between left and right affiliated people, that I'm far less interested than I ever was in trying to criticize or box people in between their political affiliation. Because what I see now, and it's partly come from having children, because you spend a lot of time at the playground talking to other parents and sort of see the world a bit differently. That even if somebody is like really, really right wing and really doesn't have a lot of the value systems I might have from my more left wing community, I still feel like that person as a person probably shares 95% of values that we do share. Like we think that cruelty is bad. You know, we believe in having good manners. If my child was hurting, they may risk their own life to save my child. I think probably someone who was very right wing and maybe even like hunts and kills animals, they might do that. They probably would. They probably also don't believe in littering. We probably actually, even with people that seem very polarized to us on maybe some topics, usually like whatever the topics of the day are, that sort of the other 95% of us are still holding the same value systems. And that's really the way I go through the world now. And I don't try to create a wall with people. Maybe something like, you know, a lot of people are against abortion in America and Christian people are against abortion. Like, obviously, I don't hold that value system and none of my friends and peers would, but I would not let that get in the way of the other value systems that I think do matter and that I wouldn't let it get in the way of the bond. Whereas I think some people let those things get in the way. Anyway, so I'm kind of rambling, but what I'm just trying to say is that we share so many similar values with people around us, even people that might seem at first very, very different. And we should focus on the stuff that we do agree on in our values rather than the ones that we don't agree on. And maybe we can all get along better if we do that more. 
Yeah, true. I think also what we just discussed about that people perceive themselves to be, for instance, caring more about biospheric values than they think others do. I think what's also a general pattern is that differences people perceive between groups are way larger than when you look at the individuals within those groups and where they actually care about. So we ask these different, many different value questionnaires to many people from different groups. And then you see at an individual level, so how they score on these values, there are not that big differences between the groups. But if you look at how they think they themselves, so people from their own group, as well as people from the other groups, what kind of values they endorse, there are huge differences. So people tend to overestimate these differences between the groups quite a lot. And where in fact, indeed, many people within those groups are relatively similar to each other. Right. So we're all basically pretty much the same, but we tend to think that the other is like way, way nastier than they really are. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to say that we are all the same. I think people are quite different from each other, but I think differences mm. within groups are often way larger than between groups. And I think right. many people sort of expect that within a group, it's relatively homogeneous. So everybody's sort of similar to each other. And that it's also for a group you're not belonging to. And they are similar to the people within that group and completely different from you. But typically, there's a lot of variation within those groups. And actually, those groups don't differ that much from each other. Mm, yeah, it's so interesting. I also noticed in your paper this phrase, the self-transcendence cluster, which I didn't know yes. what it meant, but I thought it sounded really cool because <laughs> I just started reading Scott Barry Kaufman's book, Transcendence. And I was like, you know what? I actually don't even know what the word transcendence means, but it sounds cool. It sounds like something I probably want to do. What is it? What does it mean? It's just a sort of more general, higher level cluster of values. There are different value theories. One of the prominent value theories is the, the Schwartz value theory. And what they do is they define different values, which are sort of universally endorsed. So all the people in the world endorse those values to some extent, but they differ in how strongly they endorse each of these values. And you can cluster those values in different groups. For instance, one of those values, and that's the one we have been talking about a lot, is biospheric values. You also have altruistic values which is more about caring about others, pro-social motives, et cetera, et cetera. And those belong in the self-transcendence cluster. So it's basically caring about things which are outside of yourself. So things that are larger than you as an individual. And on the opposite end, you have the, for instance, the egoistic values, the more hedonic values, these kind of things, which is really about things about you as an individual. So gaining possessions, gaining power, you as an individual, being ambitious, need for pleasure, comfort, gratification of your desires. And those are clustered in the larger group of what we call self-enhancement values. So the one is really focusing on you as an individual and getting as much for you as individual as possible. The other one is what we call the self-transcendence values. And it's more about if you care a lot about these things, you want to invest in something larger than yourself as well. Are they all just in two buckets, like either bigger than self <laughs> or within oneself? Are there other buckets? There are also other buckets and it also depends on the level of how you specify them. Specifically, those two are relevant for environmental behavior. So there's a lot of research focusing on what kind of values are relevant for, for environmental behavior, and specifically the self-transcendence cluster and self-enhancement cluster, and then specific values within those clusters are typically related to environmental actions. So typically, biospheric and altruistic values sort of promote these kind of actions, so people who more strongly endorse these values are more likely to engage in environmental action. Whereas people typically, on average, people who more strongly care about those self-enhancement values are typically less likely to engage in these actions. But it's not always the case because some pro-environmental actions might also be beneficial for you as an individual. If you put solar panels on the roof, you might also earn money in the long term. So it might also benefit some of those self-enhancement values. So it's not always like that. But if you look at it at a very general level, the stronger people endorse self-transcendence values, the more likely they are to engage in pro-environmental behaviors. The stronger people endorse self-enhancement values, the less. Right, right. So how do we kind of push everybody to become more of the self-transcendent type? You know, I'm just interesting as you're explaining it, just realizing how important that is to me in terms of who I get close to in my life. Because if I start seeing signs of people being more self-interested than they are transcendent interested, it's completely repulsive to me as a friend. Like if a guy has a sports car, like a $300,000 relief, it, it disgusts me. Like I really, really don't like it. Whereas somebody who was of a different type of worldview or personality, you know, they would like it. But obviously I like it if somebody's got a Tesla, which is also kind of an expensive car, right? But it has a different value system, you know, just something that's just a purely ego-driven car or someone that spent their whole life just devoted to making money. I find that kind of gross. Slightly yeah, I think there you, you really know, have a like, conflict between two value yeah. systems. So <laughs> indeed, then you value on very sort of fundamental things. And that's indeed might explain why you really don't like such a person because that person have really 
different values than you have. And yeah, that might be difficult in relationships. So I think in that sense, I completely understand that if you care a lot about one type of values and relatively little about the other type of values, because you can also care about both. So it does not necessarily mean that if you care about one, you don't care about the other at all. So you can care about both, but typically those with strong self-transcendence values are relatively lower on the self-enhancement values. And I think if indeed your self-transcendence values are very strong and your self-enhancement values are very weak or relatively weak, then indeed someone with the exact opposite values might really be unattractive to you. And the same, of course, applies to someone with very strong self-enhancement values. They might also think about people with very strong self-transcendence values, not sure what those people are and be really unattractive to those people. So I think indeed it's our sort of the fundamental principles people have, the things they really care about. And if they are not aligned with each other, you're probably not going to like that person. Yeah, the more egoistic people that have invested a lot of time into their own personal success, they probably think we're just losers. Riding yeah, around on your bicycle, you don't have a fancy car, your clothes aren't expensive, you know, yuck, who wants to be like that? But are these values injected into you in childhood? I was just thinking about, I had a kind of an unusual upbringing that I was raised between two homes where parents got divorced raised between these two homes that were really as opposite on this thing that we're talking about as possible. So my main home with my mother's family was very conscientious of not wasting. Always turn the lights off. We never bought too much. Not for the environment, but just to kind of like a bit of a throwback to wartime Germany when nobody ever wasted anything. And just kind of like conscientious of animals, not wanting to squash things and fairly like socialist leaning. And then I would go and stay at my dad's place and he'd married this really flashy American woman who had totally opposite value system. And she just bought clothes after clothes. She had a whole room full of clothes and all this makeup and this big diamond ring and they had expensive cars and holiday houses and an airplane. It just disgusted me as a child because it was so against my primary value system. They were as opposite as they could be. Watching this woman who just embodied everything that I was raised to think was revolting about people. And she wasn't a very nice person even. But it makes me think, is the only way to give people this transcendent identity or value system in childhood? How do people get it? Where does it come from? Yeah, it's a difficult question. And there's also quite some debate about it. I think indeed it's something that develops during childhood. There's also quite some literature on that. Whether you can change it later in life, there's a lot of debate about what, what are the possibilities there. Also, whether it's ethical to do something like that, because it's also a bit weird to change people, their values. So maybe not something you might feel comfortable in doing, posing your own ideals on someone else. I'm not entirely sure whether you could consider that ethical. That's a debate on its own. But there is some research which shows that very big life events, for instance, so when someone migrates from one country to another country, that then in that case, values might, for instance, change. Or when something very big happens, like the COVID crisis now, that that could have an effect on people. So really big life events, which really had an impact on people, their lives, that that might cause certain shifts in values. But at individual level, so one person throughout their lifetime, I think the main part is indeed within the childhood. So when they grow up, adolescents, they learn about what's important. It depends on their social environment, what their parents care about, maybe their peers care about what's being discussed, et cetera, but also what kind of topics are important at that time is quite detrimental or important in what kind of values they have. And changing them is relatively difficult, but you see changes, I think, over generations, there might be changes occurring. Mm. Environmental education work in childhood. I think everybody does think it's a big deal, but trying to impress those value systems on with kids in childhood, it wouldn't make it perhaps an immediate win because the kid still has to grow up, but it could be really, really powerful. I just posted this quote to Twitter from an article that I read that said something like 30% of kids plan on being vegan now in the UK, like they're already self-identifying as vegan. And these were young children, like eight, 10 years old, not teenagers yet. And I was like, wow, in my generation, being vegan or vegetarian was a very fringe thing. And a lot of us have kind of adopted that and we've raised our children. Now the second generation's coming up and that's a tipping point. That's like over 25%. Like it's very likely that that next generation will tip it over and turn eating meat to a very fringe behavior. If that can be encouraged in the childhood journey, it can stick for a lifetime. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And that's also where some of our research is now focusing on this, on how do those values develop? For instance, within school classes, within the peer networks, etc., what determines what kind of values they endorse. And also here, the group values are, of course, really important. So how you perceive your peers to endorse certain values might have a very strong influence on what you yourself care about. Right. I mean, it's amazing how absorbent children are to these messages. I mean, I've got a six-year-old. You said you've got a six-year-old as well? Yes. 
I teach her about energy vampires. It's a really fun thing. And we draw little pictures. She draws little pictures for me of energy vampires, like a light with little bat's wings. And so I've taught her, I'm like, we have to switch the light off because it's an energy vampire and it's sucking electricity and it's going to put carbon dioxide out and it's going to hurt the coral. It's all about the coral. She understands what that is. And so she's really good at finding energy vampires. If I forget a light, she's like, mommy, it's an energy vampire. Like you've got to turn it off. Like, and I taught her about the differences between the cars, like electric cars versus the fossil fuel cars. We still have just a regular car, um, not an EV. So she's like, mommy, when are we going to get an electric car? I really don't want our car hurting the corals. And I'm like, I know we'll get to it soon, sweetie. We're just got to organize some things. And she picks up litter on the street and she's like, I'm being a good earth doctor. I taught her how to be an earth doctor. Like it didn't take much. Like she totally has absorbed it. And now she's kind of leading me. Now she's the one. She gets mad at me if I don't pick up trash like on the ground. She's like, you can't leave it there, mommy. It's going to go into the ocean and hurt a turtle. Like, mommy, aren't you going to be a good earth doctor today? And I'm like, oh, can you please just like leave the trash? I want to get to school, you know. But the kids are like, so it's like, you don't need to put in much effort into that age to get them to be really responsive. Whereas to somebody who's like fully grown, it's really hard to turn them. But anyway, it's fun. It'd be fun to probably just teach children environmental values all day long. Yeah, I'm not doing it personally, but indeed it's our fun projects to look at these kind of things and also how these things are discussed then. I think it's also a big problem. So I think many children are also interested in these kind of topics, but it's not always being discussed that clearly. So not all programs focus that clearly on these kind of topics. I think indeed in order to make people and children appreciate, for instance, the environment, it's also something where you need to be taught about, need to learn about, need to experience, etc. Yeah. And another question that people ask me a lot, and the only answer I have to it is the tipping point, you know, you get early innovators into it and then that leads to more people and then eventually the majority comes along. And the question is, yeah, sure, Katie, everybody's into this green stuff and they're people like us, you know, they're people who vote left, you know, we'll put on solar panels, we have like a science degree. What about all the other people? What about the people out in the Midwest, you know, they vote for Trump, they're anti-climate change, all they want to do is watch TV and drink. I don't even know if these people are like imaginary people or whether they're actually a person that we've met. Because I think sometimes people imagine these kind of like huge imaginary chunks of humans that aren't real people they've met. But they were like, well, how are you going to get out to them? Like nothing's going to happen unless you get out to them. And so my answer is always like the tipping point, it's the best answer I got. But it sounds like with your research, it came out saying that when the group has a perceived value, it'll bring along those laggards. It'll bring along all those kind of more recalcitrant people. Yeah, I think maybe that might be a bit of a too strong formulation. <laughs> so I think it's also important to note here it's that those effects are, of course, not that if you move, if you ensure that people acknowledge that others care about these topics as well, maybe also in a group which is not prototypical pro environmental, that this still might be an important topic to those people, that that immediately causes all people within that group to take these actions. So it will have an impact, but it's not that from being completely non-environmental, you've all of a sudden become completely environmental. It's just sort of boosting people, their motivation. It gives just a slightly bit more motivation to take these actions, which might make people think or take a certain action, which they, they previously wouldn't, but it's not that they all of a sudden are going completely pro-environmental or something like that. And I think that's also with a lot of psychological research or many things, there are so many things that influence your behaviors that many of these things can have an impact and can have also a big impact if you look at society. But it's not that if you're going to do something, you're all of a sudden going to make someone completely pro-environmental or completely supporting something or all people support something. It's just that within a population, you see an increase in these kind of things. Right. But I think you could probably accurately say that better identifying and reminding people of the pro-environmental group values helps to lift the laggards. Yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah. It might also be the people who don't identify with the group and therefore are not influenced by that group because that group might not be that important to them mm -hmm. or they might right. start disidentifying. But I think in this case, it's also, you can try to convince everybody to do something, but maybe first make sure that you have a large enough group to make sure that many people see this as something which needs to be done. And then in the end, those others will also well, take these actions. Well, there will always be a sort of a minority which probably won't take these actions. I think the important thing is that Many people are already motivated to take certain actions. And I think it's really important to make sure that those people also take these actions so that you take away these barriers. And there's, of course, also a group which is really not caring about these topics at all. And it's, of course, also important to sort of make sure these people, if you want to make pro-environmental behavior more widespread across society, 
that those people might start doing things as well, but it might also be really difficult to reach them. So it might not be the first group you may want to target, it might be the most difficult group. I think maybe also a lot of attention and energy is spent on those people, whereas those might be the people who are most difficult to achieve something with, at least within this topic. Right. You mean that we should not start with the most difficult people, or we should start with them? I think it's important to make sure that the many people that are motivated, that you enable them to also act right, on right. these motivations. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of like the, the tipping point, there's such big low-hanging fruit with getting the people that are already motivated to do stuff. At least if we get them involved, you know, it should spill out over to the more recalcitrant people. If we ever achieve that, we can get to them yes. later. So in practice, what would your advice be of how this can be better implemented, say, by sustainability managers at cities, a climate program manager at a utility, the EPA, the federal government? They get to work every day. They have a meeting. How can they practically draw on these insights and put them into practice more? Yeah, I think so. Related to my research, I think the most important thing is make these things visible. So make that people care about these environmental topics, that they are willing to take certain actions, but also that they are already taking actions, make that visible. So thereby you get this sort of social group, which does these actions, which might motivate people to do the same thing, also show it to others, because many people might be privately motivated, but if they believe that others don't care about these topics, they might not be willing to show this because they think others may think bad of them when they engage in these kind of behaviors. So make really sure that there's sort of a supportive social context and try to create that, for instance, through, for instance, campaigns, advertisements, making those people visible, making those actions really visible. And I think another thing is taking away many of the other barriers. So make sure that's not too costly for people. So maybe it can be subsidies, can be other things, make it easier for people to do these kind of things and educate them how they could do this. So if they care about these things, how could you translate these values to practice and then make sure that people are able to act on it? And I think a big advantage of that is also that people act on their values, the things they care about, which also make them happy typically. So Mm. if it's important to you and you're are enabled to act on these kind of things, then it's also a boost for how you feel about yourself. So then it also has other positive consequences, even for the individuals who are performing it. So not only environmental. Oh yeah, this relationship between acting on your values and what do they call it? The green glow effect. I've got to do another yes, indeed, that's quite... with whoever did that research, the green glow. Yeah, it sounds like the way to do it is to say, this is who we are as a community. This is who we are. This is the types of people we are. And like what you mentioned before, that reminding people of environmental things they've done before helps cement the environmental identity to help them do more. This is what people in our community are doing. This is our new norm. This is that we are normally these environmentally conscious citizens. This is our city's value system, our town's value system. And trying to weave that into the whole campaign, that's like a totally different approach to basically saying, here's a burning earth. If we don't stop climate change, we're all going to die, <laughs> which is a lot yes, of like environmental messaging that, that goes on. Or like the ocean is full of plastic and we all have to stop now is quite different to being like, we are people who protect the ocean. This is our value system. We care. We choose to take action both politically and individually. It's quite a different tone, a style of communication to kind yeah, of- it's like often that indeed people communicate- what's going bad and how many things people do wrong, it might actually demotivate people because they think, well, nobody cares about this topic. Apparently it's completely unimportant. So why should I? And I think it's indeed really important to communicate that these things are important to people. And maybe not even that it's a new norm. I think also for many people, it's already a norm or values which exist for a really long time. So that it's something which is really part of that identity. It can be part of the city identity. It can be part of an organizational identity and does not necessarily have to be New. It's also something where maybe in history, many people within that city already cared a lot about. So it's just part of the identity, but highlighted. Mm. And it's really focusing on solutions and examples of what people are doing. Two more questions. Second last question is, what are you most excited about researching in the future? I think the topic you just discussed about value change and how values develop. I think that's something super interesting and where you can have a big impact with. So I think those things, I would really like to research those in more detail and then focus on this more. How do people form their values? Where are they based on and how can you sort of influence that? I think that's very interesting. And how we turn someone from an ego value system to a transcendent value system in midlife. Yeah, that's maybe someone in practice (laughs) can translate it to, (laughs) I prefer to stay on the neutral side in this. (laughs) Okay. And if you could look 100 years into the future, where a lot of our big problems in the world, 
climate change, plastic pollution, deforestation, all these things were solved and the world was a lot better. What would be the one thing that you would like to see happen? If there was one like key in a lock that you think would be critical to making that chain of events happen, what would you think that was? I think better acknowledging where we care about and also from each other. So not only knowing where you yourself care about, but also knowing better where other people care about. And I think that might be also sort of a social tipping point in which people start to realize that it's something you do together and you care about together and also therefore are willing to take these kind of actions. Mm, Beautiful. That's a wonderful way to end our fascinating conversation today. Thanks so much for joining me, Thais, and thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. I will put links to your papers and your website and your email in the show notes if anybody wants to follow up on Tyser's research on groups and biospheric values. It's been really fun to learn about. So wonderful conversation. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the How to Save the World podcast. It's an incredible journey to understand all of this academic research and be able to share it with this incredibly nurturing and loving community. I am thrilled to have the How to Save the World podcast partnered with some of my favorite groups in environmental design and technology. Our first partner is a group called EarthHacks. EarthHacks runs environmental hackathons about once a month where they gather all sorts of technology folk, computer programmers, GIS people, designers, engineers, and just about anybody to get together for a weekend hackathon and dive into these fascinating environmental technology problems. I definitely support getting involved in EarthHacks. If you're into technology or computers or data and the planet in any way, you will love EarthHacks. And you can sign up and join their hackathons at earthhacks.io. Our second partner is a group called Climate Designers, run by my friends Mark and Sarah. And Climate Designers is a group bringing together all types of designers from all disciplines of design and asking the question, how can we use design to help solve climate change? They've pulled together an amazing group of people from around the world and they hold events and a podcast and they run a community on the platform MightyWorks and you can sign up and join their group at climatedesigners.org. And our third partner is a really cool group called Conservation X. Conservation X runs all types of innovation challenges and partnerships to try and invent and come up with new ways of, of cutting edge technology to help with the conservation movement's greatest problems. And Conservation X X has really come out of this small-scale DIY hacker put-it-together-yourself space with conservation and it encourages people to start building their own technology. And you should jump onto their website at conservationxlabs.com to check out their current programs. And they also have a podcast that you can check out called Explore. The links to sign up to these really cool partner groups are in the show notes below. may have noticed that I produce several projects that you might like to sign up to and check out to see if it's useful for your sustainability and climate work and interests. The first one is Energy Lollipop. It's a Chrome extension that shows you the real-time emissions of the Californian electricity grid with a bold color to signify its intensity. And it's really fun data to watch because it fluctuates wildly. Our electricity is almost completely clean during the day because California has so much solar, but then it jumps up around dinner time when the sun goes down to be really dirty. And oh my God, you should see it when we have a heat wave. The CO2 literally jumps off the chart and the emissions go into the black color zone. The Energy Lollipop Chrome extension really shows us how carbon intensive heat waves and air conditioning really is. And it also shows us how important it is to try and nudge people to shift their electricity consumption behaviors from this peak CO2 evening zone at around dinner time over to the middle of the day where our grid's electricity is mostly created by solar. It also tells a powerful story about why we need better energy storage. Energy storage meaning batteries. It's great to have clean energy during the day, but what do we do when it gets dark? So jump on to the Google Chrome store and type in energy lollipop and you'll be able to install the Chrome extension there and you can find out more about it at energylollipop.com. 
The second thing I do is called Urban Canopy, and it is all about getting urban heat island data and putting it together with behavioral science. I worked with NASA JPL to develop a process of creating high resolution maps of urban heat islands using freely available data. We can put these maps together of the surface temperature of cities with pretty high granularity and then calculate the average surface temperature of every single land parcel. And this is where the behavioral science magic comes in. Once we have the data for every single land parcel, the data being the surface temperature of that land, then we can compare them against each other. And nothing taps into the motivational core of the human mind quite like being compared to our neighbors. If you think a thermal land surface temperature map like this could be good for your city, have a look at urbancanopy.io or send me a message and we can see how we can create a tool like this for you. If you are bored of the climate doom message and you want to focus more on solutions and you love the idea of an ecotopia future, sign up to this group I've set up called the Imagine Project. Now, I love eco cities and eco utopias, and I love the idea that we can actually create an environmentally sustainable biophilic world one day. I set up the Imagine Project to bring people together who also want to dream of this better world. It's a network of people who have this similar aspiration and we get together about once a month to make before and after artworks of urban spaces where we take a photograph of an urban space that is ugly or sad or decrepit and we take it into a graphic design program and make it beautiful with trees and green walls and animals and color. And the process of reimagining these urban spaces has an almost magical effect on the person making these artworks and they're really fun to see. There's almost a transcendental quality of looking at a hard paved surface urban space with no nature and no art and no love and then looking at what it could be if it came alive. It's a really fun process so you can sign up to that at katiepatrick.com forward slash imagine. I also have a book on the Amazon Kindle store called Zero Wasteify. It's a tutorial of over 150 zero waste living tips with some fun data and infographics. And the book really dives into how important it is that we look at the environmental impact of the supply chain of the ingredients of our products instead of taking this extremely limited view of recycling and only looking at the environmental impact of products once we've already used them. The book is called Zero Wasteify, Mastering the Art of Zero Waste Living and it's available on Kindle. And the fifth main thing I do, of course, is my book, How to Save the World, that's available on Amazon, on Kindle. It's also an audiobook on Audible. I have a course on udemy.com that's about how to apply gamification and behavior to environmental issues. And you can get started with that when you sign up to my website at katiepatrick.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And thank you to our amazing guests who have joined us on the show. And of course, for your interest in the amazing world of environmental psychology. Now, let's get out there and make saving the world the greatest game we've ever played. <laughs>